1: So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, We're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you.
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick word from our our sponsor, Benefactor here. Finding Genius Foundation has recently come out with a book called Understanding Viruses. It's a compilation of interviews with uh, 25 top virologists. It's on Amazon. If you go to Amazon and type Finding Genius, uh, you'll see the book. And it's available for purchase on Amazon and Kindle. And the Audible version is coming soon. Today, my guest is Brendan Coventry. He's an associate professor of surgery uh, in Adelaide uh, in South Australia. And we're going to talk about melanoma, uh, breast cancer, and surgical oncology, and possibility of a vaccine, uh, I believe, for melanoma. So, Brendan, thank you for coming.
3: Thank you very much, Richard.
2: Yeah. Well, tell me about your, uh, your work. Is it mostly clinical in surgery or is it also research what's the split for you
3: it's a little bit of both it's translational it's going backwards and forwards between the surgery the clinic and uh and the lab and uh and at the same time trying to assimilate a lot of the literature that's going on around us so it's truly translational and it's it's probably one of the the hardest areas that a researcher can do because um the uh, and and I think any you know true translational researcher will will say that because uh, it's just incredibly difficult. You're working in universes that kind of only appreciate their own universe, if you know what I mean. And uh, and, and so the clinical people sort of think of you as a a bit of a half baked clinician, and the uh, researchers think of you as a bit of a half baked researcher. And the problem is that trying to sort of straddle this this bridge, if you like, is uh, is incredibly difficult and it's it's administratively difficult like the administrators don't seem to really appreciate the true worth of uh, of translational research and uh, and also in in terms of trying to get funding and things i mean you would think that would be where the funding would be thrown but ironically a lot of the the funding is directed at either sort of pure clinical research or pure fundamental research and and where you truly really try to cross a bridge particularly if it's not a a particularly popular area at the time it becomes incredibly difficult and and so you know if there's any um if there's any people that control money that and funding that are listening really and truly you know this is where the money should be uh, being put or a whole lot more should be put because um it's not to say pure clinical and pure fundamental research aren't vitally important but i think the true translational bridge work which is so damn difficult is uh is not really terribly well funded. It's really really hard to get money.
2: Yeah, I thought that there's a SBIR program and an STTR program through NIH for translational work.
3: Yeah, yeah. So there's the R21 schemes and various other schemes that that are really good, but um, but you know they're they're not they're not that open to people from outside the US. Um, I think it's going to get pretty interesting with COVID uh, and a lot of the the additional research that's gone on. But you know, some of this might help us too. I've been musing lately about how COVID might actually help a lot of other research, like cancer research. And um, for example, we've never really looked terribly much. It's never been popular to look at at the common cold. Now, some twenty to thirty percent of common cold viruses are coronaviruses. So this is this is getting really interesting. I mean, now for once we've had tons of money thrown and lots and lots of research time thrown at at um the coronavirus. And so, you know, we we may get to understand a lot about the way the common cold works, which could lead us to some fundamental understanding about how the immune system works, you know, how we yeah, defend ourselves so. And, and so on. And that will lead to understanding about cancer, I believe, too. Well
2: tell me about your research. Let's focus on that. What's that look like?
3: Yeah, so so we um I sort of got interested in the immune system Many years ago in high school, and I was looking at snails taking up carbon particles and, and phagocytosing them. And you could see all this in real time. It was truly fascinating for, for a um, young person coming into the whole area of immunology. And about that time, you know, a bit before maybe McFarlane Burnett was um, publishing with Medawar, publishing articles on trying to control uh, viruses using interferon. And it was also noticed at that time that you could control some cancers with these similar sort of cytokines. He coined the immunosurveillance hypothesis for cancer, saying that, you know, the immune system in people was and animals was um, was pretty highly tuned to picking up uh, aberrant uh, malignant so-called cancer type cells and, and that these were removed from the system. So it was only the ones that sort of escaped immunosurveillance that, that ended up with um, cancer, as we know it clinically. Well, I thought that was fascinating, and and I still think it's fascinating, and and I'm still fascinated, probably just as much, if not more, uh, today as I was then. And um, this led me to do a PhD in in um, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, which was starting to get popular in the early 80s, and and then uh, ultimately became really interesting in the, in the late 80s. A lot of work out of the NIH with Steve Rosenberg and and many others. Um, that were looking at at that, um, and about that time, I had the opportunity to get involved in in a vaccine trial that was going on in Australia, uh, using a type of vaccine that came from a patient's melanoma cells, and it was able to cause a lot of reactivity in a lot of a lot of other patients. So, uh, it was it was really quite interesting, and. Then I got involved in some NIH trials that, that were were sort of multi-centre, and, and uh, some of the centres in Australia participated in those, and, uh, and that was fascinating too. So I started looking at different types of cancer vaccines, and ultimately, you know, it became more and more interesting that the purer you made the vaccine, the less effective it was. So... We sort of, I particularly, but but our group and, and others started focusing on the sort of more complex vaccines, the ones that, um, in many respects, were so, for better, want of a better word, dirty vaccines. They they weren't clean at all. They didn't. They weren't like a drug where you could synthesize, say, a single molecule. They they actually were complex, and they had lots of componentry to them, and. It was like the immune system was somehow being sort of more broadly primed, and that that somehow made it uh, much more likely to get a an effective response. And so, in about two thousand, we'd finished one trial, and the vaccine. In fact, the trial itself was done in sort of slightly earlier stage melanoma, and and it was a effectively a negative result. But but interestingly, the curve for the treated group compared compared to the placebo group was was always greater, and I thought that was fascinating. It was, it was on the verge of being statistically significant, but not quite. And, and I, I just kind of thought that something was was sitting behind there, but I couldn't make it out, and neither could anyone else. And, and you know, it was largely scrapped as a as a vaccine. And uh, in about two thousand, a chap was sent to me by another surgeon, and and this chap had had multiple melanomas uh, removed. And it was getting to the stage where after, you know, some 20-odd operations, removing small deposits and uh, having had uh, radiation treatment and various other things for, for deeper melanoma in his body.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Now back to the show.
3: Um, the uh, the surgeon said, "Look, you know, every time he's coming back to have his sutures out, there's more that are popping up. You know, is there anything you could you could offer him immunotherapeutically?" And mm. uh, I I looked at we uh, we were just about to start one trial, an NIH trial, and we were we'd finished uh, this this other trial that I'd mentioned, and and I said to him, "Look, you know, I, I don't know, but." I said there's chemotherapy, which has a very, very low response rate. It's maybe, you know, 10% response rate and about a 1% survival for advanced melanoma. So it was, it was pretty hopeless. And, and the side effects were, were present too in a large number of patients. So, so I said, well, look, you know, there's this vaccine that we have trialed and we, we have a lot of experience with, we know it's not toxic. We know that it, it really doesn't seem to affect People uh, apart from you know having some effect against the tumor, but we can't. What, what was what thing. was the
2: vaccine for? Was it is this off use or is it was it made from melanoma?
3: Yeah, well, you no, know, it was it was a an experimental vaccine, a, a um, lysate, what we call a lysate vaccine, which is is a uh, is manufactured by by lysing existing cancer cells that are that are set up in a cancer cell line, so it's grown. And, and replicating uh, line, and uh, we lysed it. And interestingly, we we have lysed it. This particular vaccine, we lysed with a virus, and it was um, it was an oncolytic virus, a very well established virus, a vaccinia virus. And we and that that was of course used in the smallpox epidemic to try and vaccinate against smallpox. But it also selectively bursts cancer cells, and we don't know why, but it it uh, is quite active against cancer cells. There's a number of viruses that are that are oncolytic and, and like that, and uh, and so it was a the, the vaccine product was Elizate. It was it comprised of of tiny fragments of, of viral particles, but but lots of of debris from cells that have been burst, and uh, so very what what you might call a, a an impure vaccine, a, a so-called dirty vaccine
2: and um well i thought they, they uh, the stuff they add to it they call adjuvants i guess to stimulate the immune system to have a larger reaction than it otherwise would yeah
3: yeah, yeah that's right and, and so there's been a lot of work with adjuvants but adjuvants are an addition they're a, they're a they're, right, an addition they're not the main
2: to the vaccine main, so, uh, mechanism
3: no adjuvants represent something that you're adding to the vaccine to make it stronger make the response stronger and uh so, so this probably had its own adjuvant in there. You know, it probably had mechanisms for boosting the reaction that you would have got if you'd not had, say, viral particles in there. I think, I think this is turning out to be incredibly important, and we're noticing it with um, with a lot of research. You know, some of the coronavirus stuff's looking interesting in that area too. But the the nuts and bolts of the story and, and the beginning really. Uh, came in two thousand when when this chap came along and he couldn't we just couldn't stop his tumor the, the surgery was not being effective so we uh, I said to him look you know there is this vaccine we could try that I said it, it's probably worth a go but I can't guarantee it will do anything anyway uh, he had one dose and came back and he said look doc he said I think I think it's starting to disappear and I said really I said no this is pretty interesting so I had a look and sure enough it it was quite red and inflamed, and it looked like it was decreasing in size. These nodules that you could feel underneath the skin. And uh, anyway, what happened next was I revaccinated him two weeks later, and then at this at this uh, clinic interview, and and then he came back another two weeks later for his next vaccine. And he said, "Look, doc, they're gone."
1: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
3: And I said, "Really?" I said show me. And he, and I had a look and sure enough, there was nothing to feel anywhere. We performed CTs and all the tumor that was related to his lung and everything had gone, completely gone. Uh, I saw him uh, a few, two months ago and he's now just passed his 20th anniversary of survival from advanced melanoma. That's uh, great. So, Wow. Uh, That's rare. Yeah, it is. It's, it's very rare. And, and I'm really, really enthralled that, that I could, I could actually witness this it's a, it's a, an amazing thing when you witness it and so uh, I don't think if the response had been so dramatic that I would have really gone on to the next patient and and so we've we've now had a string of patients. I ended up doing a small trial of fifty uh, just over fifty patients and and interestingly uh, we have had regression in in a a surprising number so we had we had a seventeen percent complete response rate where everything just disappeared and uh, a lot of people when i when i have mentioned this at conferences and things just they they don't believe it they don't they don't believe that it could happen and and um, i might have been one of those too if i hadn't seen it myself but uh, but interestingly this regression is remarkable and uh, just like was noticed when the vaccine was was initially selected the cell line was selected it's able to cause uh, responses in a large wide range of patients this is interesting in itself so we we're at present trying to sort of unpick this we 've got a lot of blood stored for these patients and and we're we're trying to sort of unpick all of this but what we do know is that the actual technology behind this has really never been looked at properly and uh, we are now trying to unpick it. We've been to uh, probably, you know, uh, five or 10 pharmaceutical companies and no one wants to look at it because it's not a simple drug that can be synthesized. But this technology has the opportunity to revolutionize uh, cancer therapy. Um, it's, it's almost certain that that most treatments vaccinate patients against their own tumor. And I'll explain this a bit more. It's, it's really interesting. I wrote an article in 2019 And I entitled it uh, therapeutic vaccination, immunomodulation, colon, forming the basis of all cancer immunotherapy. And I put a question mark at the end. Uh, So was it forming the basis of all cancer immunotherapy, this this therapeutic vaccination that's going on? And by the time I'd finished writing the article, I removed the question mark because in, in my mind, there was absolutely no doubt that vaccination was occurring with every type of cancer treatment I think almost every type of cancer
2: treatment what does that mean vaccination is occurring with cancer treatment what do you mean
3: yeah yeah exactly and and so exactly
2: and I mean are are people being vaccinated when they have cancer or what do you mean you mean chemo and radiation and surgery is vaccinated I don't understand yeah
3: the whole lot if you how how I'll explain it is that we had a lysis lytic type vaccine so we've got a vaccine that comprises a cancer cell line that's been burst apart and that itself is able to induce complete responses we've we've shown that we've published on that and and we're now sort of looking at, at any, any partners that can help us to try and commercialize it but what we what we really want to do is drill down a bit more and look at the mechanisms that are going on here so so we had a elizae burst cancer cells that could actually engineer an immune response now when I started to think about this I thought well you know what does chemotherapy do what does surgery do what does what does radiation treatment do what does in fact immunotherapy itself do well what it does is is all of these treatments are able to induce a certain small rate of complete response where all the tumor disappears fascinating how can multiple different mechanisms that are that are said to be working through entirely different pathways how can they Actually, engineer complete responses, which is a, the final common denominator. So, I started thinking about this and I thought, well, just imagine for a minute that if all of these treatments at a small rate were able to damage cancer cells to such a degree that they could cause a lysate, a bit like our vaccine, and they could then release antigen from the cancer cells, then that could get into the patient's uh, circulation and, and tissues, and it could incite. An immune response. So it may be, and it's almost certainly true, I believe, that the immune response that is occurring to a lot of these treatments, including surgery, is absolutely instrumental in the patient actually trying to treat their own cancer. So in other words, the treatment is really just the mechanism for disturbing the cancer microenvironment to such a degree that antigen gets released and then that antigen itself is able to incite an immune response in the patient.
2: So chemotherapy, I mean, it's systemic; it's killing fast-growing cells, supposedly. But are you saying that's not its only method? It's also stimulating those cells to release antigen so the immune system will be more likely to pick them up.
3: Yeah, and that that question is really important because what it what it shows is the, uh, I guess, I guess in a way that the sort of uh, difference in understanding that we've had, where imagine a chemotherapeutic agent It's said to be cytotoxic, it's said to actually just kill a cancer cell. So we're thinking of cancer as being a massive dividing cells that are killed by the chemotherapy agent. And that that the death of the cells means that they're taken out of the equation. And that it's this, it's this depletion of cancer cells that's leading to the recovery of the patient. And that may well be true. But What's happening at the same time is there's death of cancer cells. And that as the cancer cells die, the cancer cells release all of the surface molecules and the contents of the cells. They burst. And in that process is released a whole lot of chemicals that are contained on the melanoma uh, or the cancer. Uh, and this goes for this goes for believe, I believe, much wider than melanoma, it's, it's all cancers. Um, the the surface of the the cancer cell contains these antigens. These antigens can be recognized by the immune system. They may be not able to be recognized uh, as as clearly or as strongly as is needed to get rid of them naturally by the patient's own immune mechanisms. But what happens is that this release of antigen is enough to incite the immune response and switch it on. And it may be that it needs some other triggers too, like danger signals that come from viral pathogens or bacterial pathogens. And it may be why we get responses to certain infections. And these were described way back 100, 150 years ago, that certain infections occurring at the time that a patient has a cancer can lead to spontaneous regression.
2: So ideally, you'd be able to replace chemo, radiation and surgery with you know a vaccine type element that would stimulate the immune system in a similar way, but you wouldn't have to do any of these other uh, treatments which are invasive and destructive.
3: Yeah, it might be. It might be that we supply the vaccine like we're doing currently in our studies, that we actually inject the vaccine and we inject it intradermally so that it gets taken up by uh, special cells in the skin that can present antigen better called dendritic cells. And uh, it may be that, that we actually supply exogenous vaccine. Uh, Or it may be that we find ways of of actually selectively destroying cancer cells uh, in the patient so that we can incite the immune reaction that's going on, because after all, what's happening in the patient when a cancer is growing is there's a certain death rate in that cancer uh, mass. And so as the death rate is going on, the Immune system is constantly being primed. It's constantly being exposed to the antigen from the cells that are dying. And in this process, the immune system is being stimulated at at intervals. And it it looks like the immune system is being stimulated in waves almost. We noticed this with some of our vaccine patients. And we uh, searched a little harder and we looked at um, uh, the way that, that the immune system was being switched on and switched off we monitored patients using uh, crp a very general marker for inflammation that we use a lot in surgery for a lot of a lot of things like appendicitis and pancreatitis and various other uh, infections so we uh, we used crp and what we noticed that was that if we did it on a near daily basis we could see fluctuations in the crp level we we thought it was we used some some really simple mathematics and it turned out that they were too simple and uh, we, um, we looked at the fluctuation, thinking that it was probably quite regular. But there's a lot of noise going on here. And uh, we've, we've now used some artificial intelligence to try and drill down a little further and, and used um, deep learning to try and, and look at this a, a bit better to see if we can predict when it might be better to treat, for example, as opposed to not treat. And when we know that... Um, that a lot of vaccination that occurs to infectious disease might be dependent on the time of day that the vaccine's given. So there's there's a lot of sort of diurnal rhythms and other aspects of, of cancer treatment that have, are essentially unexplored, almost completely unexplored. And we were starting to drill down here with this, with some of our vaccine work as well.
2: Well, are you repurposing existing vaccines or do you now have any hints on new vaccines to create? Or, you know, are you looking at technology that appears to be again oncolytic and then pairing it with adjuvants to make it into vaccine-like treatment like what's the first path forward or it gets to go through all paths
3: all of the above um we uh we we sort of at the moment we we're looking at at trying to understand why the vaccine that we've got works if we can understand that we might be able to engineer some better responses it's possible that we could and it's a lot of it's been revolving around toxicity, too, because one of the the key problems with the current newer immunotherapies that have come out, which have been massively helpful to our cause, because until very recently, we've been told by by many people, including a lot of clinical oncologists, that that uh, the immune system's got nothing to do with cancer. It's almost unbelievable now with what we know with um, with uh, the anti-PD-1 treatments and the anti-CTLA-4 treatments. But when you just go back a, a few short years, 10 years or so, the only real immunotherapy that we had was interleukin-2 uh, and perhaps BCG, tuberculosis vaccine, which was used for bladder cancer and it was used for melanoma as well. And no one really believed that, vaccination could work. It was it had a very checkered history. And uh, if you go back in the literature, a lot of the studies were negative. So it, there was a lot of scepticism about, about the immune system and cancer and a lot of scepticism about vaccines. And I think there, there's still a bit of that hanging over. But when the anti-PD-1 and anti-CTLA-4 immunotherapies came along, suddenly we started to see much better responses uh, to, say, conditions like advanced melanoma and, and then lung cancer and, and uh, quite a number of other cancers now. But not only did we see that, but we saw rampant autoimmunity being unleashed. And one of the interesting, most fascinating things about all of this is that the autoimmunity almost parallels the response, the clinical response against the cancer.
2: So what, what does that mean? It parallels the clinical response.
3: Well, what happens is that that when a patient has a response in their cancer to the immunotherapy, they almost always have autoimmunity as a side effect. In other words, what it's doing is it's somehow unleashing the control over uh, tolerance, really. Uh, uh, it's, it's reducing the tolerance that the immune system has to a lot of normal tissue. So it's not uncommon to get pneumonitis or colitis or affect the pituitary or the thyroid. And um, it's, it's fascinating that that autoimmunity is almost necessary for the effectiveness of these immunotherapies. Now, the immunotherapies like interleukin-2, anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1, they all effectively are pure immune drivers. They just drive the existing immune response on. And so that means that if we're getting responses when we just simply push the accelerator down, then we must be pointing in the right direction for a certain number of, of patients and therefore just accelerate what must be a slightly ineffective immune response going on underneath against their own cancer
2: yeah, would you think it's ineffective or would you think it's overdone i mean it seems to uh i guess to take on a life of its own and do too much And that's the autoimmune you know that's the characterization yeah, well, of the autoimmune response
3: no you're quite right it's the alternative hypothesis and and it it has been that that sort of uh concept has been proposed by um quite a number of people that in fact we're just sort of the wheels are spinning if you like it's not so much a problem with engaging and and getting traction it's it's actually that the wheels have been lifted up and and you you can't sort of you can't sort of uh, so that so the engine's on the wheels are spinning but we're not actually moving anywhere and you're stating well look it's overdone well yes it could be Uh, we're not really sure which way around it is whether it's a it's a situation where the wheels are spinning and, and these treatments just put the, put the vehicle down and allow it to go or whether uh, in fact, it's, it's happening at such a, uh, an ineffective level that just a little bit of a boost over the top actually uh, engineers a correct immune response. That, that is- well, why
2: don't you, why don't you try to find a sweet spot and tone down the adjuvants to the minimum level And thereby, you might uh, reduce the autoimmune response later.
3: Yeah, and people have done that. They've reduced. They've turned back the the amount of IL two anti CTLA four. That people have tried it in all sorts of dose levels. And what what is found is that that in general, if you turn it back so you're not inducing autoimmunity, it doesn't seem to have as much effect clinically. It's not as uh, it's not got as greater effectiveness. So, um, so this is you know this is all fascinating. We're learning a lot. We're not we're not sort of in a, in an area at the moment where we can can engineer responses as effectively as we'd like, and to minimise toxicity as effectively as we like. But but it's um, it's it's gaining a lot of ground. We we also know that the microbiome is important. Uh, there's been a number of studies that have demonstrated that. Um, by modifying the microbiome uh, that's the the gut bacteria basically then you can uh, alter the effectiveness of, of some of these immunotherapies so there's some there's some things going on in the background that we we don't quite comprehend yet but we're we're gradually unpicking it
2: well yeah very good brendan um unfortunately today we're out of time but it definitely sounds like we need to have another conversation about this in the future if you're willing. But where yeah, can people find out time. more about your work at this moment? Where can they go?
3: Um, well, we've got a number of publications. There's uh, basically just just Google Scholar, and and that should be able to pick up some of the publications that we've been putting out. And you can you can Google uh, vaccine treatment of uh, of melanoma, and that should give some some results as well. Um, I'm happy for people to contact me directly if
2: they'd like. Okay, very good. Well, Brendan, thank you for coming and talking about this. And again, it's it's like we just touched the tip of the iceberg. So-
3: My pleasure, Richard. Yes, indeed, indeed. We're right on the cusp, and I think this is going to be a very fascinating journey in the next 10 years or so.
1: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
0: You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.